This is the Journey 66 Book Writing Podcast. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are your road trip advisors. You may be at mile marker one and just thinking about an idea for a book, or maybe you've gone off-road in your writing and you want to restart the journey. Join Dave and me as we help you buckle up and write. Badvertising. It's a perfect word to describe the flaws, foibles, and failings of ad agencies. There's a lot of bad advertising, according to Jim Morris, author of Badvertising, an expose of insipid, insufferable, ineffective advertising. After a 40-year career in the ad industry as a copywriter, a creative director at ad agencies, and an instructor and student of advertising, he knows the foibles firsthand. They are what he calls agents of stupidity. Jim says there's so much myth, misinformation, whitewash, and romanticizing out there about advertising with very little truth-telling. Today, Jim is here to talk about his latest book, as well as the process of writing it, specifically how he developed his book, the importance of narrowing his audience, and the difference between short-form and long-form writing. Welcome, Jim. We are so glad to have you here with us today. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So before we hit you with some hard questions, Dave and I want to share a couple of areas in our life where we've made progress. And I always have Dave kick off the progress of the week portion of our podcast. So Dave, where have you made progress this past week? So I'm going to hit an old story or uh, go back to something I talk about a lot. So this week is the first week that our youngest daughter, Jalen, who's in seventh grade, is back at school. So I've complained bitterly about the hybrid model and how awful it is for especially middle schoolers who have a hard time even getting dressed in the morning, much less handing in homework via Google Classroom versus when you hand it in when you're in person. It's been just a nightmare, but this week is the end of that and it's full time and we are so excited. It's also so symbolic of the end of uh, the end of the of the pandemic, I realize it's not over, but the waning, at least the waning phase of the pandemic. So I've been proud of Jalen. She's been a trooper. I've been a little grumpy about the teachers who try to, uh, in their best in their best moments, they try to make make the work. Uh, if it's not math or science, it's really hard to show progress, right? And so they're doing their best to give them busy work, and but then it ends up being this nightmare. So I am so glad that we're at the end of it, and to me, that's huge progress. It is progress, and I'm with you. There are all these little mini signs of our world kind of creeping back to a little bit of our pre-pandemic state. We had a little bit bigger of an Easter celebration than a year ago, so it is kind of these little moments that you can celebrate and say, ah, oh, we almost made it through. Yeah, how about you? <laughs> yeah, so my progress for the week is actually related to literature. I was a PhD student. I dropped out before I completed the PhD, but I was a literature student. I love literature and I have not read much literature over the past 15 to 20 years. And my son knows that I love poetry and he's a math major and stats major. And so he's really a math guy, but he has to take one more literature course to complete um, his his requirements for graduation. So he brokered a deal when he was signing up for his courses a few weeks ago. And he said, mom, I'll take a poetry class, but 
I'll only take it if you promise to discuss every single poem with me before class. And he's going, it's a win-win. You get to read more, more poetry because I know you want to read more poetry. And I get the benefit of really getting to dialogue about this before I go to class. I'm like, okay. So last night we did our first reading together and separately, and then we discussed it. And I was up until midnight, which is way too late. And I'm on my college students schedule and it's just not fun, but <laughs> it was fun discussing literature. Um, we read On Dover Beach, which is such a beautiful poem and I was, I just loved it. So anyway, that is progress. I'm reading more poetry and really enjoying it too. <laughs> that doesn't sound so interesting to me, but I, you know, good for you. <laughs> yes, well, I, I love, I love words. What about you, Jim? Have you made any progress this week that you would, would like to share? I guess just on a kind of a, day-to-day -day level in terms of this coping with this uh, mess we're in. There's been progress in that I've been able to get out to the to Lake uh, Michigan. I live near Lake Michigan to go for a walk along a lake. I've been able to do that already three times in the last four days or something, which is definitely progress compared to up until this week. That's been progress because that, that helps me clear my head and very therapeutic. There is so much therapy and walking and the weather has been so delightful the past three days here yeah. in the Midwest. So I'm, yes. I'm happy for you. That's wonderful. So we're just going to just jump right in. And first, we want you, Jim, to tell us about the big idea of your book and why you thought this book had to be written. If you can tell our audience about that, that would be a great place to start. For me, the overarching kind of theme of the book or point of the book is that the advertising industry, which probably it's probably true of many industries, but I don't have experience in many industries, just this one. So the advertising industry, when you're, it's, its job is to create ads to sell things. In the process of doing that, if you're in the trenches involved in the process of, of creating advertising, what I noticed early on and, and started uh, piecing together over time was that there's just a ton of denial, of misleading activity, of pretending to know more about the process and how to, how to do it well than, than there is actual knowledge of it. <laughs> there's a lot of pretense. There's a lot of posturing. You know, if you do an ad, you have to uh, identify a, a target audience that you're going to be um, sending a message to in the ad. The research people and the account service people all get together generally and they look at uh, whatever information they have on what they think the target audience should be and they try to glean as much information as they can about that person and they put it into a creative brief that is given to the so-called creative people, the writers, art directors, designers, those people that tells them what the assignment is in one relatively brief document. They're making up, it's a fiction, you know, this target audience thing, it's a fiction, it's a construct. There is no clear, well-identified target audience in most cases. I, everything I say, there's an exception to it. So generally speaking, they paint a picture based on very limited information that they have about uh, who it is that they're trying to send a message to. And, and the same thing for what the message should be. They kind of take their best guess about what a message should be. All of that is fine. It's, it's, the, it's the pretending that it's not trial and error, that there's some, mm. that we, we actually know what we're doing. <laughs> when, <laughs> my, my whole career, I've maintained that 
that I'm not an expert in advertising, that there are no experts in advertising because that implies a, a, a body of knowledge and understanding we don't have. Just tell us a little bit then about when you decided this book needed to be written. You were noticing all of these patterns in the advertising industry and you're like, I've got to get this out in a much wider realm than where I'm currently yeah. discussing it. What was that moment? It wasn't a moment, but it was a, certainly a realization over a long period of time. At some point in my career, I, I'm, I'm a, being a student of advertising, I read a lot of advertising-ish books uh, and magazines and that kind of stuff. So I'm always looking for new information and insight and so forth. It became apparent to me at some point that there wasn't anybody who was exactly directly addressing a lot of these problems that go on in the process of creating advertising. No one was really talking about it. You know, advertising books tended to be either uh, memoirs by advertising legends, you know, who, who had uh, stories of glory and horror stories. And it was like that. Or it might be a textbook that just breaks down, you know, to, that does what textbooks do, you know, it tells you all this stuff. And, and it, it, that was very unsatisfying. And then there's, there are some books that are very, very critical of advertising as a phenomenon. Those are often written by kind of social critics and social scientists and that kind of thing. There's books like that. And they take advertising to task in ways that I don't necessarily largely agree with, but they don't address this internal process business that's going on that I, that I had such a problem with. So on the one hand, I was noticing that no one's saying this, you know? And there, there was a time when I was writing a, a monthly uh, advertising column for a local Chicago publication called Screen, which was uh, for the TV production and commercial production uh, industry in Chicago. It was largely maybe a, like a gossip rag a little bit. The publisher of that magazine, that publication, heard about me somehow and, and asked if I would be their advertising columnist. She said she was looking for an iconoclast. You know, and I, I didn't even know what that meant. So I said, okay, well, I, I can do that, whatever, whatever that is. And, uh, and so I did. And so I started running, writing these monthly. But that kind of forced me to think of things, issues, you know, things that I wanted to write about. I wanted to write about this or that kind of thing. So the first thing I think I wrote about was lobbies of ad agencies. Because uh, just like with advertising for ad agencies, lobbies for ad agencies were at that time long ago, they, they might as well have been lobbies for insurance companies or law firms. They were dull, boring. They probably had a bunch of uh, awards on a shelf, you know, one wall of the lobby. And, and then there was a receptionist and there was and, and a couple of chairs and there was nothing to you wouldn't know that you were in what was supposed to be a hotbed of creativity. You had no ideas. Like, what the heck? That's the first thing that people see when they come to your, if, if a new client comes to your agency, why would you present yourself like that? You know? Now, a lot of ad agencies in the, in the intervening 20 or 30 years or whatever have made big strides and it's in a lot of places, it's much better. And, you know, during my career, I would notice one thing after another, like that little things about how agencies ran their operations in many different aspects. And I started writing these things and I started getting a lot of really positive feedback anecdotally. Somebody would 
well, they wouldn't email me back in the early times, but they, they would let me just like I read your column and I really enjoyed it. It's about time somebody said that. You know, I got a lot of that kind of reaction. So I started thinking, well, okay, I can I can do this. I, I can complain about ad agency stuff all day long. It's not a problem. One of the things that you said in an email to us when we were prepping for this episode, you talked about this moment when you were talking to a Mensa group and yeah. Mensa being those really, really smart people of which I'm not one. And yeah. you, you talked about how this idea of agents of stupidity came to you for this book. And I think the reason I, I, bring, I bring this up is because we have a lot of authors who are trying to figure out that angle for their book. And I think often they don't think that way and they just start writing and they've got 10 chapters, but there's nothing really to hang those 10 chapters on. So talk a little bit about how that came to you. I know it was probably just a serendipity, but, and how that helped you really think about and write your book. When this opportunity, this immense opportunity came along, just fell in my lap, I was daunted by the prospect of this audience. I thought, oh man, okay, now I'm, I, I'm gonna say something about advertising to really smart people. What in the heck, <laughs> what, would I, what could I possibly have to say to these people? So I, I thought, I have to have an idea here, <laughs> an actual idea, <laughs> which is, you know, what, that's what I'm supposed to get paid for as a copywriter is coming up with ideas. But in this case, different, different target audience, different message, you know, it was all, it was all kind of suddenly new to me. So uh, when I uh, relaxed a little bit and, you know, got over the panic, then I started thinking about uh, what would be an uh, encapsulating idea that I could come up with that, that I could talk to these people about and they're outsiders so they know advertising as consumers, assuming any of these amounts of people ever watch an advertisement because you know, I, couldn't, I couldn't be sure of that, but I had to assume they must have missed at least heard about advertising. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I thought, well, okay. Uh, I'm going to try to think of an idea. Now, where agents of stupidity in particular, where that concept came from, I wanted to point out a general uh, kind of a trend or something that I noticed as a pattern at ad agencies in the process of doing advertising. I thought that that's pretty good. And, and uh, agents of stupidity gave me that vehicle where I could call anything I wanted an agent of stupidity and, that, and it worked. It's kind of a hook. It's a little bit memorable. It's a mnemonic or something, you know, something like that, which I've heard are useful sometimes. So, um. Jim, you talk about um, the Mensa group being a consumer crowd, right? And as you began to write the book, you, your audience changed from the consumer mindset to more of your peers, people in the advertising industry. Can you talk a little bit about that shift of, of yes. audience and how that changed kind of your writing? I think it was my ego that drove the idea that because I find advertising fascinating. Everybody finds advertising fascinating. <laughs> and I had lots of arguments in favor of the idea that advertising, a book on advertising could be interesting to a general audience. When I was writing the proposal for the book, I had this big long list of examples of ways in which I know that advertising is intriguing to regular people, you know, starting with Mad Men and a million other TV shows and movies, and, and uh, there are novels about it. And I've seen advertising in, in exhibits and museums. Um, there are TV specials about the, the world's funniest advertising or the world's 
stupid as that, you know, whatever, that kind of thing. And on, on top of that, uh, I, I remembered back that whenever I was in a group of non-advertising people and somebody said, oh, what do you do? I'm an advertising copywriter. And either that was, there was followed by a, a long, awkward pause and then they moved on to the next person. <laughs> or, or they would say to me, you know, I just saw this ad that it was just God awful. How is it possible that a, a bunch of presumably bright people, and there must have been a, a whole bunch of people who saw this idea in, in its germinal state, thought it was a good idea, approved it, approved millions of dollars to pay to run it, you know, up and down the line, both at the ad agency and at the client. They all thought this would be great. And you look at this and it's an embarrassment. It's so obviously flawed in some way or another. It's insulting or it's, you know, whatever, whatever it is. He said, you know, what, what's, what's up with that? <laughs> and so at that point, I thought, well, I think that that's a question that's in every consumer's mind at some point or another. There's some ad that just insults them or just uh, is so wrong in one way, one way or another. What the heck is going on? So I thought, okay, a consumer audience will definitely. So that that's how I decided this would be my my uh, audience. You know, it's a much bigger audience. So if it were true that they were interested in this book, then it would be more successful in that regard. So that that all happened. So I wrote the book, basically pretty much the whole book or, you know, 80 or 90% of it anyway, at least to the point of having a pretty respectable draft. And then um, I, anytime I sent it out into the world to like have a, a, a colleague of mine look it over and tell me it's wrong with it, or I would send a, a query letter to a literary agent or something and tell them about uh, it unanimously, a consent, I always got back, well, this, this seems like a, a good idea maybe, but it's, it, you got the wrong audience. This would be uh, for an advertising audience because you're doing nuts and bolts, you're in the weeds. Yeah. And, and I resisted that mightily because I didn't want it to be like, like that. I wanted it to be a more broadly interesting book than it may wind up being. We'll, we'll see. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> well, you, you did convince the publisher to, uh, <clears throat> to take it on, right? Yeah, but not until long after I had conceded that it needed to be for uh, a business or for an advertising audience. Uh, it wasn't until, you know, when I finally got convinced of that, this is before I even had a relationship with a literary agent, which is something we can talk about if you want. And, uh, and so, at, the, at some point I, I went back and I just basically started over and I just went page after page going through it and and thinking about it in the head of an advertising audience, not a consumer audience. And what, what do I, if that, that's my, if that's who I'm talking to, what does that look like? You know, what, how do I need to sound when I'm saying we, am I saying we uh, consumers of which I'm one, even though I work in the business, I'm also a consumer of advertising, or when I say we in the book, am I talking about we advertising people? And I'm not sure I've entirely sorted that out, even in the book, the way it is now. Somebody else will have to tell me that. I tried to be consistent with that point of view, but I also acknowledge in the book that sometimes I'll be talking to advertising people, and sometimes I'll be talking to consumers based on the fact that advertising people are also consumers of advertising, and so am I. So it's a little bit mixed up, but I wanted to acknowledge that. 
because it, it let me talk about more stuff than I could otherwise. I would love to talk about the literary agent. Um, how did you land one? And how did that process go? And maybe any advice you might have for others who aspire to that? Well, first, I, I have to say, since I'm working in nonfiction, I have no experience in the world of fiction. And my impression that I've gotten over the years is that they're entirely different paths, or they can be. One of the eyebrow raisers for me in the process of, of writing this book is it seems like, uh, who knew? Uh, but it sounds like if you're doing nonfiction, like a, a so-called business book, you don't have to write the book. You just have to write the proposal and get somebody to read it. And they'll, they'll buy the book based on the proposal. You haven't written a word. I can't, I am still stunned by that because doesn't the quality of the writing make a difference? I mean, does it not matter at all with a business book? Is that where we are? Oh my gosh, I was so uh, shocked when I kind of realized that. So in the meantime, you know, I, I wrote most of the book or almost all the book. So that was one thing. Then I went back and I, I'm reading books on how to get a literary agent. First of all, you go through the list of literary agents and you find the ones that specialize in whatever your area is. You do that. Now that all made sense. So I narrowed it down to a list of about 50 or 60 literary agents that, that in reading about them and their profiles and all sounded like they might, you know, you have to take a guess at some point, will this person, you know, just look at the advertising, <laughs> will this person be interested in what I have to say here? So I went through that process and then I started sending out, um, you know, this is again, just me being told what to do by books, you know, saying, well, first you start with, a query letter, the very first thing you have to do is write a query letter to uh, a pers prospective literary agent and give them a one page little thing about you. Would, can I send you my proposal? And most of them don't respond or respond with a form rejection letter thing, which uh, you know, it makes sense because the volume is ridiculous, you know, how many books are out there. But then once in a while, a, a literary agent will say, oh, well, that's interesting. Okay, uh, send me send me your proposal. And you know, when that first started happening, I'm going, oh my God, I, I've got to write a pro you know. So then I put everything on hold and I started writing a proposal. So now I go out and get a book, how to write a proposal, right? So it's a good thing there's books because you know, you, it's hard to write a book if you can't ever read a book about how to write a book. So, um, so I did that, you know, I, I wrote the proposal. Now that was way harder than writing the book in a certain way. Because uh, I'd never done one of those before, and again, I now have to take into account who's my target audience. You know, who who am I writing to? What do they care about? You know, so that was another big revelation for me early on, which was that there's there's something called a platform, which I didn't even know what that meant. It was some vague word. You know, people. Well, you do your bio, and you do your table of contents, and you do your you know this or that, and then you have to uh, describe your platform and so why a publisher would think that you have any influence over anybody or anybody's ever heard of you or would care about what you have to say about anything. That was discouraging to me. <laughs> I, I've spent my whole career in anonymity, basically, you know, except for, you know, writing a column or here. So there's a few people in Chicago might know who I am. But other than that, there was very little for me to base an argument that I have a platform on. I certainly am not, you know, in, in as I've mentioned to you earlier, I think I, I don't do social media essentially for the most part. Um, so that kind of 
undercuts my ability to have a platform since platforms are these days largely that. I sent these query letters out. I finally put the proposal together. I sent out the proposal maybe three times to three agents that showed any initial interest. And uh, this was over a course of time because whenever I would get any feedback back from them, I'd go back and revise the proposal and so forth. Uh, the first two agents showed initial interest until I sent the proposal and both of them said the same thing. Well, this might be, there might be something here, but you've got to provide more uh, uh, solution oriented things. So you have all these agents of stupidity, but you don't really tell us exactly how to fix each of those things. Business books are about solutions. And I'm saying, well, yeah, but this is not a business book. How do I explain to you? This is not a business book because <laughs> it doesn't have that many solutions. It's not about solutions yet. You know, it's a premature. Two of the agents said, no, thanks. Then the third agent was the one who actually I signed on with. And she was, she, um, was a taskmaster who, you know, ha had me fix the proposal a million different ways. It took me almost, it took me at least six or eight months of revising the proposal before she would agree to, you know, represent me in the real world. What do you think she saw in your proposal? If you, if you admittedly don't have a huge following or platform, <laughs> yeah. what was it do you think in your proposal that made her bite and say, yes, I wanna take this to publishers and pitch it? I really don't know. I mean, I really seriously am not sure what it was because you know, by that time I, you know, the, the draft was now to a business audience. So I kind of solved that problem. She underlined that uh, when we first started working together that I had to fix a few more things and all. I, whatever case I made for the platform, it seemed to be sufficient that she was either buying into it or at least thought she could sell it, you know, the big lie to a publisher. <laughs> so maybe, maybe that was it. In our conversations leading up to this interview, we had a little bit of back and forth and we asked you the difference between short form writing, which is what you do a lot of with, with copywriting and long form, which is this book. And you talked about some writers being, I think, contractors, is yeah. that right? And some yep. being expanders. And so can you talk about what it was like moving from um, short form to this more long form? Um, way of writing and maybe there, it was a blend of the two. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Because I'm what I consider a contractor, that's why I've been able to make a living for the last 40 years because I'm good at that. If I were going to be a uh, any other kind of writer that required longer than 60 seconds or 60 words on a page or whatever, I don't think I could have made my living doing that. So I really believe being a contractor or an expander is kind of you're hardwired that way and then there are people who can do do both but because i knew very well i was a, a contractor the only way i could think of to write a, a book would be to take a bunch of short things i wrote you know and put them together and then eventually they become a long thing <laughs> uh, but it was not it was not because i had some because i had the idea for here's 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 how i develop my argument throughout the book and then in my conclusion and I, uh, evidence, for, you know, big, a big vision, of some kind, I didn't have anything like that. What I had was many, many years of having written uh, columns and essays and 
letters to the CEO of an ad agency I was working at complaining about this. You know, I, had a, I kept all that stuff. So I had all this raw material of issues, which became agents of stupidity that I had gathered over the years. You know, I used to have a hard time coming up with 400 words. Uh, I've gotten better at doing that. I can now usually write 700 words sometimes <laughs> <laughs> in, a, in a chunk, you know, but but that was it. Is I wasn't able to over, to transcend my contra contracting nature, uh, but instead I kind of did an end around just by taking a bunch of little things, tying them together because fortunately they tie together, and you know so that that worked out really well. What is the average length of a chapter in your book, and how many chapters <laughs> do you have in your book then? Because we do talk a lot with our our audience and also our online membership community about there's not one way to structure a book and we often get kind of sucked into this way of thinking that a good you know trade book is nine to ten chapters five thousand words but no. <laughs> really they can be structured many different ways so can you tell our audience a little bit about the structure of your book sure first of all understand that i gave that no thought whatsoever right. uh, <laughs> chapter, chapter length or none none whatsoever i, I always have felt i always say this well a whole other story, but but I'm always saying that it's as long as it needs to be, whatever it is. Uh, when I work with taglines all the time, people are always saying, oh, they need to be, you know, no more than seven words and stuff. And I'm going, no, no, no. Many of the greatest taglines of all time have been 17 words or 12 words or something. It's as long as it needs to be. So I took that, basically that approach. It wasn't conscious or intentional. I took that approach, but that's how I approached writing chapters. So the average length of chapters is from about two pages to about 20 or 23 pages, something, something like that. I haven't, I haven't counted them, so I don't know, but they, they range. Uh, and one piece of wisdom that my brother shared with me, who's also an author of sorts, he, he said, you might want to start the book with the easier, shorter paragraphs, not the really thick, complicated, dense, kind of uh, academic-ish things of which you, you aren't any good at anyway. Don't, don't start with that because you're going to scare them and no one's going to get through the first chapter. And then that, so I did go back and based only on that one criterion, I think I ordered the, reordered the chapters at one point to give them, give the reader maybe six or seven pretty easy short chapters before I got into something that was meatier. One final question as we kind of wrap up this, this wonderful interview, thank you so much, is what do you really hope the book does for you personally, professionally, and what do you hope it does for the people who are reading it? I, I imagine you have some ideas and <laughs> you're spending all this money and all this time and I would, I would imagine you have something that's driving you forward. What is that thing? I have a general hopeful, naive notion that if a bunch of people read the book, that the process of creating advertising at ad agencies in some ad agencies with some people in their heads will get a little bit better because of them being aware of something and so then pre more prepared to address whatever the problem is. Some of these problems that I identify are intractable. They're not, you can't fix them, that's human nature. But it's still good to know that they're there. You know, just in general, it's good to be aware of your environment, right? So, but beyond that, in terms of a, a hope for, I, I really probably only have one, one concrete, tangible hope, which is if this book happened to be 
successful, whatever that is, and I still have no idea what that even would mean, uh, you know, in terms of book sales, what, <laughs> what would that be? But if that happened, I've got another book that I'm writing, and uh, maybe I can get a publisher to agree to publish that book, which I think is going to be a much harder sell, I think, uh, to, to publishers because it's more of a niche thing. So um, that's my hope. Well, I noticed that you had some pretty big name people endorsing your book, um, yeah. which must have been pretty gratifying. Other best-selling authors, pe people will, yeah. who are big in the advertising industry, but that must have been really gratifying for you. Very. It's ironic. There's an irony to one of the people. Drew, uh, Drew Whitman, is a, he has a, the same publisher, and so the publisher probably has a, a deal with him or something, you know, we'll pay you such and such to review this book. He wrote the foreword to it. So yikes, that was fantastic. It's ironic though, because he, I know he read the book because he quotes it in his foreword in places where you would have to pay attention to the book to know that that was something. But he and I actually come from very, very different schools of advertising or philosophies of advertising. And so as much as I love that he uh, was effusive in his praise, I was, I was amazed that he was because a lot of the things I'm saying are antithetical to a lot of things he says. And, and, so that, and that's been a conversation going on within advertising forever that we could talk about some other time. Yeah, but right. uh, so, yeah, but you're right. Gratifying, very surprising to me that anybody would say something nice about the book like that. It was, it's fantastic. So much wisdom in this podcast. I mean, we could have another <laughs> interview and still have plenty to talk about. So we are so yeah. grateful for your time, Jim, and we're looking forward to seeing what this book does. We'll, we're going to keep our eye on you. Before we close out this episode, we are going to end with our words of the episode. And I'll go first, as I always do. And this is a word that I learned last night while studying one of Davis's poems for his 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 modern, or yeah, his modern Brit lit class. And it was by mm. Charles Baudelaire, who's actually French. So I don't know where it <laughs> comes from, <laughs> but it was, we had our, we had our phones out. We were like looking up words left and right in the dictionary last night. And this one is serried, S-E-R-R-I-E-D. And it means standing close together. So the word in the, the mm -hmm. sentence in the poem was serried, swarming like a million maggots, a legion of demons carouses in our brains. And when we wow. breathe death, that unseen river descends into our lungs with muffled wails. Wow. And that's from To the Reader by Charles Baudelaire. So it also can be like a serried rank of soldiers. You can visualize them stacking shoulder to shoulder. And I wrote a dumb little sentence myself, which is I was thinking of it in terms of getting onto the L after a long day at work. Mm -hmm. At 5 p.m., students, secretaries, professors, shoppers squeeze into the L, the doors closed, serried and stuffed in the stench of the sweat of a 10-hour work day. So, <laughs> and then I wonder, are we ever going to have serried <laughs> days again, like at concerts, amusement parks? I mean, COVID, it's, I don't think anybody wants to stand close together in the days that we have now. So that is yeah. my word, serried, and I'm sticking to it. Your turn, Dave. <laughs> wow. Oh, Jim, you can see that when you hear my word, you're going to go, yeah, she's the sophisticated one. She's the one with the masters in English lit and, and I'm not. So, uh, so my, so my word of the episode, and I, and I, I use this word mostly because I like to talk about fly fishing of which I'm, I'm just very passionate about. So the word is tippet, tippet, T-I-P-P-E-T. -E and so tippet is part of this kind of extravagant 
combination of fly line, leader, and tipping. Mm. So there's three oh. things, right? So when yeah. you get a fly rod, you put fly line on, but that's fly line. It's this, this often it's floating, but then you have to put a, a tapered leader. So like a nine foot leader. But if you're fly fishing for the putting tiny flies, you could put one at the end. You could put a tiny fly at the end of that, that, uh, mm. that leader. But often you'll even extend it farther because you want it to be so thin and you want to make, if you're, you know, putting on a size, let's say 18 or size 20 fly, which is so tiny, then you need to extend the leader. And so when you extend the leader, you put on tippet. It's a specific gauge monofilament line that is attached to the end of the leader so tip it Amazing. so it's yeah. very flexible and allows your fly to float or swim more naturally before we close dave is going to tell us a little bit about our road trippers dave you want to tell our audience about our road trippers if you're writing a book, it's a long slog from the time you come up with the idea to the time you publish, whether you self-publish or publish. And so Road Trippers really is about those who want community. We also provide a lot of tactical help on structure and thesis and 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 just really support as you're going through this. So if you'd like to join the group, just jump on Facebook, search for Road Trippers. You'll get the Zoom link and you're invited every week uh, to join the group. All right. Well, I think that that's a wrap. I'm Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write. <laughs>